Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Michael Thomas, who is a writer, filmmaker, and social entrepreneur. Michael writes a newsletter on loneliness, mental health, and emotions, and is currently writing a book on loneliness. Michael's interest in writing this book is because of his personal struggle with loneliness. He shares with us his personal experience, what he's learned, and how others can identify, understand, and cope with loneliness too. The questions we pursue are, what exactly is loneliness? How does one not feel lonely anymore? Is loneliness a symptom of modern culture? How will social isolation impact feeling lonely? We also discuss the difference between happiness and fulfillment. So if you're feeling lonely, ambiguous loss, or anxiety from human disconnection, it's important to be vulnerable and share how you feel. Chances are you're not alone. We hope this episode will serve as a conversation starter and a source of comfort for many. As always, please feel free to share this conversation far and wide. So without further ado, I bring you Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, sir? Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. So Michael, the reason why I wanted to talk to you is because a lot of the work that you do is you share your thoughts via writing, you explore emotions, you explore this idea and this feeling of loneliness. In essence, a lot of what your writing does is it tries to make sense of what it means to be human. And so I'm curious to know, how did you discover the power of writing? I would say started when I was really young. I think as you know, as young as five or six, I remember reading books and short stories. And I think that I found that books were a place where I could find these worlds that were fun and imaginative and fantastic. Even as young as probably seven or eight, I remember writing short stories and trying to express that creativity. But then when I moved to California, just after college, I started writing a blog and wrote about my experience in Silicon Valley and what I was learning and heard back from people who said that they enjoyed the writing and enjoyed following along and me kind of sharing some of those lessons. So that was when I really started publishing on the internet. And then I've been publishing for the last seven or eight years like that. Now, as a writer and somebody who in many ways takes their thoughts and puts them on paper and then takes the leap of faith and and shares those thoughts with the world, what does that arise in you as you're going through this process, knowing that others will read it? Hmm. I think the the way I think about story is a way of making sense of the world. And such a big part of it is trying to find meaning or explore meaning. I've heard it said like a, a story is a character doing something in a place. And it's really simple. I mean, we all tell stories at the bar or with friends. It's really how we connect as humans. So for me, it's been a way to express my own un- understanding of the world and, and also explore it. So a way to think. It's a way to process everything around me and then also to connect with people who 
in some cases I've never met before. I once heard and or read, I can't recall at this point, the purpose of writing is to make others feel like they're not alone. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I think this is a really great segue to explore the work that you're doing right now on loneliness. You're writing a book on loneliness because of your experience feeling lonely. Would you be willing to talk about that with us right now? Yeah, absolutely. So last year I was running my company, Campfire Labs, marketing agency, and I went on vacation, told my business partner, I'm, uh, I'm heading out. I'll, I'll see you later. If I don't come back, you'll know that I've jumped ship and was sort of joking with him. I didn't actually end up coming back to work. I burned out. And when I was in Europe there, I just was in this weird kind of like days and I would sleep for 12 or 14 hours. I would wake up like 11, go get some food, come back to the Airbnb I was staying at, sleep for another four hours, go out to dinner. And it was like every day I was just kind of doing that. And at first I thought I was jet lagged. As it went on for like a week, I started thinking probably wasn't jet lag. And it wasn't until when I got back that kind of looking back at the trip and realized that I felt really depressed and had this sort of dissociative depression where I just felt like I was almost out of my body. Like by the last day on the trip, I just felt like I couldn't really feel much. And it was this strange experience. So when I got back, I told my business partner I needed to take a little bit of time off. I went to the library, checked out some books, read most of the days. I'd gone to the Musée d'Orsay in Paris and was looking at Impressionist art. So I checked out some books on Impressionism and Vincent van Gogh and just kind of like killing time, trying to figure out what was going on, trying to kind of write about the experience. And then talked to a couple of friends. One of them said that maybe I was feeling depressed. I said, no, no, I don't feel depressed. I just feel numb. And he said, yeah, that's what depression is. It's a numbness. And so I talked to a couple more friends. One of my friends asked me to describe my loneliness. And I described some of it to her, but I realized that I didn't really know how to explain it. And as I thought about that more, I realized that loneliness had caused so many of these depressive episodes I'd had over the last few years. So I set out to understand more about that. And for the last six months, I've been researching loneliness, trying to understand it, both through my own experience, but also through other people's experience, and then what some of the research and data says on it, um, on why people feel lonely. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, can you kind of talk about the progression of how this works? Like there are stages to, to loneliness going from temporary to chronic. Like how does this uh, maybe it's better to talk about how it even manifests in the first place and then to talk about how it progresses. I think that in my experience, loneliness is this thing that sort of creeps up on you. You maybe don't see somebody for a day and you start to feel a little bit off and then you go longer. And for me, this bodily sensation, it's it feels almost anxious in a way. Um, it feels like something's wrong. Your body's trying to figure out what to do. It feels almost restless. And so there's kind of that timeline of any time that you feel lonely, at least from my experience. 
And then I think there's two types of loneliness. There's temporary loneliness and there's chronic loneliness. So temporary loneliness is something that almost everybody in the Western world will experience at some point in their life. You move to a new city, maybe something like COVID-19 happens and you're stuck in your house for a month because of social distancing, or you break up with a partner. And usually it, it fades and it goes away and you meet new friends or you know the lockdown gets lifted. But then there's chronic loneliness. And that's when loneliness sort of persists over time. That's the type of loneliness that research says is worse for your health than smoking cigarettes. Um, it's something that will increase your likelihood of death by 25%. Like it's a really bad. It's not described as mental illness, but it's a horrible experience that is really bad for people's physical and mental health. And that's when it is something that becomes this problem that you can't really fix in, in some cases. Is there a propensity in the modern Western world for loneliness to kind of take place? Is this a relatively new phenomenon? How does it compare to the past? Is this something that's relatively new because of technological advancements? Help us understand what that's all about. Sure. So loneliness is probably, researchers think, something that people have felt for tens of thousands of years. People who were outcasts in a tribe probably felt lonely. The phenomenon of loneliness, the, I think, prevalence of it is what's really changed. So this researcher that wrote a book called A Biography of Loneliness, she looked back at the use of the word lonely and loneliness over time. She used a Google Ngram, this tool that you can see the frequency of usage of every word. And what she found was that word lonely and loneliness wasn't really used frequently until the late 1700s. So right around the Industrial Revolution, as it starts, the word lonely and loneliness becomes used in books a lot more frequently and, and described by people as the experience that we know today. Now, it was the word lonely was used for a long time. Like in the Bible, talk about Jesus went on a lonely walk. There's books as early as the 1200s, 1300s that talk about a lonely place. But if you look at the definition at the time, it was used to describe this physical kind of solitude, not the emotional state that we know now. So that emotional phenomenon of loneliness is something that is newer. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why people think that that has risen since the modern era, basically. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? So it's the idea that to be alone is like an actual physical absence of other people, right? Where loneliness is an actual absence of having a real connectivity with others where you share like a meaningful experience, right? Yep, exactly. So the way I usually think about it is the difference between solitude and loneliness. Solitude is something that is welcomed. You know, it's inspiring. It can be fulfilling in a lot of ways. Loneliness is something that is uncomfortable and that is unwelcome, something that you don't necessarily want. There is a distinction there, and it is that difference between the physical absence versus the emotional kind of longing for others. Now, if you could describe 
as somebody who's experienced this feeling of loneliness, this lack of connectivity with others, how would you, in your own words, describe what it means to be in that space? Hmm. I think that it's really a longing for connection. It's wanting to be understood and seen by other people. And that, I think, as I have read different people talk about loneliness, at times I felt frustrated by those two words, connection, and then you know that phrase being seen, because it felt like it, it didn't quite describe it explicitly. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I think that to be seen by somebody is when somebody sees your full potential, but they also see that you suffer. They understand that you're complex and they can empathize with you. So they don't just see you for your job title or they don't just see you because you're on their sports team or some connection that you have that's specific. They're able to see you as the full person that you are. And you don't feel like you have to always fight to to show them this other side of you. And I think that that's actually really rare to find those people, at least in my experience. And when you do, it's, it's this incredible experience, right? It's love to be with somebody who cares for you, who empathizes with you, who sees you as complex and sees your full potential. And also that at times you hurt. I think that that is a, is a beautiful thing, but it's painful when you long for that and you don't have it. And so I think loneliness is, is really that. So I have to share that I come from a collectivist culture. And so in many ways, I come from this place where I was raised in the collective, mm. but slowly over time conditioned in the individualistic culture of the United States. Mm. And so I wonder, is America a place in which it's inevitable where people based on secularization, the separation of church and state, and you know the real intrinsic, I think, value that America instills in people where you have the power of choice. So you don't have to spend time with your family if you don't want to. You can, in many ways, find your own tribe. Whereby I come from a culture that you're born into your tribe and you can't change it no matter what. And so I wonder, given your given the way you think about it is if you could explain what that's like where you have the ability to find your own tribe or find your own community, does that help in a sense to kind of alleviate this sense of loneliness? I think that loneliness is a, a pretty core part of the modern Western experience. And I think that the reason for that are some of the things that you described, the culture of individualism, secularization, capitalism, and I think the way that we work is a part of that. And also the power of the state. Um, in modern societies, the state is what takes care of other people, right? Like with COVID-19, I'm saying, hey, why isn't the Senate doing something, right? I'm not thinking about the neighbor a couple blocks down. I think that they're a lot of these core parts of Western society that I think increase loneliness. You know, one of the first people that was coming up with some of these ideas is the sociologist, Emile Durkham. 
and he's sort of one of the first social scientists. He wrote a book on suicide where he looked at the difference in suicide rates across different religions. And what he found is that the suicide rate in Protestant majority countries was higher than the suicide rate in Catholic majority countries. Then he looked at the county data or district data, and he found that in counties that were Protestant majority, there was much higher suicide rate, in some cases two or 300% higher, except for when Protestants were in the minority. And then it was much lower. And he found that Jews committed suicide at a much lower rate and suggested that maybe the solidarity of being a minority in a community was something that kind of protected against suicide. And he looked at it and he said that there's no difference in the text, you know, the way that people interpret the Bible in Protestant religion versus Catholicism is the same. They say, no, do not commit suicide. But his suggestion was that the Protestant faith was very much this individual search for God. It was an individual relationship with God, whereas the Catholic church was more of this intermediary between God and the people. So people went to church and they had to have community. And then Jews had a much more rigorous kind of culture that said, you should do this and this. And there was a little bit less choice involved in some of that stuff. So he, he was somebody that studied this 100 years ago. This is, I think, written in 1900. And then you have Max Weber, one of the other founders of sociology, who writes the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism and looks at how capitalism had made people feel more lonely and increased mental illness. And so really from the beginning of the field of sociology, people have been looking at this, the impact of society on individuals. And then through the 40s and 50s, you have psychologists like Eric Fromm writing Escape from Freedom, um, looking at how modern culture made people feel alienated and lonely and how that led to totalitarian regimes. You have Robert Nisbet writing a similar thing about how modern society alienated people. And he was a conservative and wrote mostly about the rise of the state as as a part of that. And so you have all these different people that kind of describe how modern society has made people feel alienated and lonely for all kinds of different reasons. Like we talked about secularization and the way that we work. And so I do think it is a, a modern phenomenon, but it really goes back a long time. It's not modern as in the 21st century, I don't think. Yeah, it's a really perplexing phenomenon. I just had Dr. Shelley Jane, who's a PTSD specialist and psychiatrist on the podcast, and we talked about PTSD. We talked about the cognitive and physiological processes that take place when somebody experiences trauma and subsequently PTSD. But we also talked about the whole notion of alienation of service members when they came back from combat. I mean, how else can it be explained that more service members die from deaths of suicide upon returning to the United States than those who have actually died in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, is this something specific to the United States? How and why does this sort of thing even happen on a societal level? Is it attributed to loneliness and alienation? I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is something that 
Emil Durkheim studied as well in the book that he wrote before on suicide, he looked at suicide amongst servicemen. And he suggested that people committed suicide when they came back from war because they missed the camaraderie of war. And this is something that Sebastian Younger writes about in Tribe, which is an amazing book. And he's a, a war journalist and he described all these stories about people who would come back from war and would miss war because they missed the camaraderie. They missed being right next to people. They missed sleeping in a cot next to another person. And they come back and they have this safety, but they don't have any camaraderie and they feel alienated. And that's this problem that is incredibly difficult to fix, but is probably at the root of why PTSD rates are so much higher in the US than, say, Israel, for example. I think PTSD rates, he says, in Israel are 2% of people. In the US, you might know this figure better than I, I think it's 10 to 20%. And he suggests that it's probably because in Israel, you're sort of always on the front lines. It's a country that's sort of at war. And so there's no returning home to this place where people don't understand you. And when a U.S. soldier comes back from Iraq or Afghanistan, people say thank you for your service, but they don't understand what they've been through and they don't really see them. Yeah, it's true. It's, uh, it's the lack of having a collective purpose, right? So in the context of Israel, Germany, they all have to serve to some degree in any capacity for their country. And that's something the United States doesn't have, right? The United States as you well know, doesn't require anything of its citizens except that they pay taxes even though they may not be living in the United States. <laughs> Whether you're living in Tokyo or Paris or wherever, you as a U.S. citizen still have to pay your taxes. And that's the only thing this country requires of you, right? Which is really quite fascinating. So in your work, Michael, you've had a lot of career success. And you know, in the United States, this country is all about progress and this country is about moving forward and it's always about being on the go and it's always about accolades in terms of adding to the resume in which people have, which sense leads people to spend a lot of time at work. And so I'm curious to know, how do you think about loneliness as it pertains to being in the workplace? Yeah, I think that it's a really important part of understanding loneliness is understanding our culture about around work. In America and the Western world in general, uh, I think that we focus a lot on extrinsic values, so things like money, and status. We focus a lot less on intrinsic values. So the time that we spend with our family, the feeling of love. I think that that is a big part of why people feel lonely. Ezra Klein said this on his podcast a couple of months ago. He said, it's so sad that we spend all of our day from early in the morning to late at night doing work. And then we come home exhausted and we don't have energy for the people that we love most. So we have the most energy for that person that we have a breakfast meeting with at 8.30 a.m. And we spend all of our time trying to sell widgets and trying to have more subscribers and more likes, all these things. 
And they actually don't really fulfill us that much. They don't give us that much of what we really want as humans. And then by the time we get home, we're exhausted and we eat some unhealthy food. We might snap at the person that we love because we're just fried. And so if we just look at where we spend our time, then I think it shows our priorities and it would show that we prioritize work far more than emotional well-being. My perspective on this is, is such that I think as a society, it's to the society's advantage that everybody is working as often, as much as possible. But I think it's a detriment to the individual to be doing that without having the ability to give to the ones that matter most to them. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the ways I've been sort of understanding some of this recently in my research is that just as there's trade-offs in economics, there is maybe this trade-off that we've made between the wealth that has been created in the modern era and people feeling lonely and mental health rates going way up. They're probably tied and the same things that led us to live these lives that princes 500 years ago would have envied is probably also what means that 20% of people feel lonely in given time, 10% of people in America feel depressed, suicide rates grow every year, and I think it's hard to, to separate those. As somebody who studies, who's deeply curious about the human condition, I often think about the negative implications of what it means to sell the idea of happiness to an entire society, whether it's through marketing agencies or politicians. But I'm sure you've heard the saying that everybody has the right to be happy or everybody deserves to be happy. And the way I think about happiness is, I actually think about happiness as a short-term sensation that is based on impulse that we have to satisfy. Where the idea of fulfillment comes from actual giving, and it comes from sacrifice for the greater good, whether it's mm. sacrificing yourself and your time and your energy and your emotions and your sleep for your children, or your safety for the betterment of the whole, let's say in a platoon in the valleys of Afghanistan. And so I think about I think about how language is used when it comes to influencing people here in the United States and everybody talks about Michael are you happy and I'm wondering is that the wrong question I think that that's a really good insight I think there is this difference between feeling happy and feeling fulfilled and sometimes those are at odds with each other and I had experience with this when I started earning enough money that I was able to travel and I had a lot of freedom. And later that year I sold my business and I told myself, I just want to pursue my own happiness, my own satisfaction. I want to do whatever I want to do. I traveled all these countries, stayed in amazing places, and I did whatever I wanted every day. What I found was that it was incredibly unsatisfying and 
by a month or two into it, I just, I felt depressed and felt alienated in a lot of ways from other people and was not a good experience. I think a lot of people feel that in everyday life. And that's why people choose to do work that isn't always fun, isn't always something that makes you happy, but feels really good. And I compare that with some of the experiences where it's been difficult in some of the moments, but over the long run, I got to look back and and say I did something that I was really proud of. And those are some of the things that give me a sense of pleasure and happiness to this day. Whereas I can't remember what meal I ate when I was living in Argentina or what hotel I stayed in or what clothing item I wore. These things don't really stick with you. Um, What sticks with you is the relationships that you build with people, uh, the things that you learn, the ways that you are pushed through adversity and grew. That's really, I think, what is important. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. So how do you think falling into this deep sense of loneliness has transformed you and then also has informed you in your life? I think you can find meaning from loneliness. For me, I think that loneliness has given me a sense of empathy towards other people because I grew up in a middle-class family in a safe country and went to good schools and then had jobs where I worked behind a computer. Like I had no adversity relative to so many people. The experience of loneliness showed me what it meant to feel pain and it helped me just empathize with other people. So when I read a story about somebody who had suffered, I really could compare that to my own experience. And I think that is the value in general of suffering is that it can help people empathize. And so I think that my life would have been in some ways worse off if I didn't have an experience like that because I wouldn't understand as much about other people's experience. Now, given the fact that we're in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, how do you think social distancing and the lack of touch is going to affect us as it pertains to feeling lonely? Yeah, I think every day I see a Google alert in my inbox, like headlines say pandemic of loneliness or coronavirus is going to cause an epidemic of loneliness. And I think that for a lot of people, it's going to be really hard. You talked about physical touch. That's such a core part of feeling connected to people, I think. And so for a lot of people, they won't have physical touch. They won't be able to hug their parents. And fortunately, I live with my girlfriend here and I get to hug her and I think about what it would be like to not have that physical touch right now from family or friends. Elderly people especially are going to have a really hard time with this. My grandma is 90 years old and she hasn't seen another human being closer, I guess, than 10 feet away. She hasn't seen people for a month and a half and she probably won't see people until there's a vaccine. And that's 12 to 18 months off. I think that there's a lot of people who will experience loneliness probably for the first time. There are people who didn't feel lonely because they always went into the office and they got drinks with people after work and they had a busy social life. 
but maybe they don't have the really close connections and it might feel lonely for the first time. And I think that'll be really hard. I think there's also going to be a lot of people who will or have focused less on their own kind of challenges day to day, and they'll start thinking about other people. And that's one of the best ways to feel less depressed or less lonely is to stop focusing on your own experience and think about others. So maybe they're volunteering remotely and they're meeting people, or I think there's going to be people who have friends reaching out that know that they live alone. And those are people who never reached out and said, Hey, are you doing okay? Cause normal society is just goes on, right? You don't think is my friend lonely. Is my friend who, who doesn't go out that much, are they feeling lonely? Maybe I should call and check on them. But I've had a couple of people reach out to me and just, they knew I was working on a book on loneliness and they reached out and had family members set up Zoom happy hours. And so I think that a lot of people will feel more lonely, but then I think that there's also going to be a group of people who will feel less lonely through this experience. Now, is that how you personally in your experience overcame loneliness is just stepping out of that shell that kind of encompassed you and just made connections, meaningful connections? Is that how you did it? I think I maybe hesitate to say that overcome loneliness, given that the last time that I felt really lonely was probably less than six months ago. I think that the things that I've really worked on that have been helpful is trying to actually focus on less busyness and social life that felt more shallow and felt in a way like I was reaching and actually focus on deeper relationships. So spend more time with people who I feel really connected to and really try to not take that for granted. I also think another thing that really helped was just opening up about it with other people. So I think loneliness is this thing that is at, at once endemic, but also stigmatized in society. And it's a strange thing, you know, 20% of the people that you see every day have probably felt lonely in the last six months, but you wouldn't know it because it's not something that people talk about at dinner parties. It's rarely discussed on podcasts unless it is specifically about that. And so you can feel like you're the only person going through that experience when the truth is really far from that. And so what I found is that as I started to open up to people about feeling lonely, people would say, yeah, I felt lonely too. And we would talk about that and I'd feel less lonely in the loneliness. And that I think really helped. And it also helped people who love me and who are close to me really see me more fully. And I had to open up for them to see me. I had to be honest. And that was hard at first. You know, it's, it's hard to know how do you tell somebody. I told my parents before I started working on this book that I had felt lonely in my life because I thought that I should tell them before I started working on the project. And they didn't really know before that. My brother didn't know. And so it was, it was hard. I think that that's a really big part of it is, is opening up and telling people if you are fortunate enough to have people in your life who, who you can talk to about that. There's a lot of power and courage that comes from being vulnerable and what's interesting about being vulnerable is that it actually sets you free. It sets you free in your own eyes because that weight that's been on your shoulders for the longest time has now been lifted. But what I think is also really interesting is 
once you step into that space of vulnerability, all of a sudden people see you for the authentic self that you actually are. What's interesting about that is that it actually takes courage to step into that space. And in that space, I think there's actual freedom. Michael, I want to be respectful of your time. And uh, one question I'd like to ask all my guests is, what's your message for the world? I'd say I'm going to take something from somebody who I really respect, John Green, the YouTuber and, and author. And he has this phrase, imagine others complexly. And I really like that because it speaks to having empathy, but also just seeing somebody, if they maybe have hurt you in some way, try to imagine them as complex and see that maybe they had passed their pain on to you. And so you can forgive them for that. Nothing is as simple as it is at first glance, and nobody is as simple as they are at first glance. And I think that if you can imagine that complexity, you can learn a lot and understand other people a lot better. Michael, that's wonderful. Thank you for your time and I appreciate the work that you do. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.